0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has said that whoever wins Istanbul wins Turkey. So now that the candidate from his Justice and Development Party has lost the mayoral election twice, Mr. Erdogan no longer seems quite so invincible. And in much of the world, reaching emergency services is as simple as calling one number. In Kenya's capital, Nairobi, there are more than 50, and no central system controlling them. A response might take hours. Now a new service, dubbed Uber for ambulances, is radically simplifying matters and saving lives. But first, Three years ago today, Britain woke up to the results of the referendum on leaving the European Union.
2: The sun has risen on an
0: independent, united kingdom. The British people have made a very clear decision to
1: take a different path. The markets were betting on a Remain victory. They got it wrong. And they paid the price. My country is Europe as much as Britain. And my country has been taken off me on a 2% majority.
0: Many people, including here at The Economist, were surprised. So I wrote two
3: different articles, you know, one assuming that the referendum had had been a no, a remain vote, uh, and another one that I never thought would be published, saying that Britain had gone mad and voted leave. Tom Wainwright
0: is our long-suffering Britain editor. And sure enough, that's what happened. And it's been my life ever since, really. Before that fateful referendum, only 1 in 10 Brits considered Europe an important issue. Now, Brexit has become a sort of national obsession. Take, for instance, Steve Bray. He lived in South Wales and, before Brexit, wasn't exactly an activist.
2: I actually just voted for whichever party I felt could do the best. I was never loyal to any particular party
0: but he was horrified by the result of the referendum and since then has become a full-time anti-Brexit protester. He's demonstrated outside Parliament most days and in all weathers for nearly two years. He interrupts news broadcasts with placards and his booming voice.
1: Stop
2: Brexit!
0: Mr. Bray is an extreme case, but he believes many people's stances have hardened.
2: Whatever happens now, the divisions are deep, division between friends, families, neighbours, the parties are divided. There is not one part of Britain that has not been touched by this disaster.
3: People who voted to leave the EU hoping that it would mean we'd never have to hear about it again really have found that that's not how things have worked out.
2: I think that
0: people were misled or told false promises. We need to get on with getting
1: out. No deal, out. Gone 31st of October out.
2: I think we have to remain within the EU.
4: I don't understand Brexit. Yeah, I don't understand it at all, so. (sighs) Alright.
3: It's been three years since the Brexit referendum, and it's frankly sent us all a bit crazy. Uh, The government's official petition website here now has nearly 3,000 petitions on to do with Brexit. One of them's got six million signatures. People have been out marching on the streets. We had the biggest march since Iraq. Politicians have had milkshakes thrown on them on the streets. Their offices have been defaced with slogans like traitor. So So the whole
0: country has been divided into these two new tribes. Tom traveled the country to find out how these tribes emerged out of the Brexit rubble and why people have come to define themselves by something they used to care so little about. I went to this constituency called
3: Meriden and it's maybe it's a bit of a journalistic cliche because it's bang in the middle of England. There's a, a stone monument on the village green marking the, the geographical centre of England. But it's actually quite a good place to talk about Brexit because it's pretty representative of the, the Brexit vote. It was a kind of narrowly-ish voting for leave. The median salary there is roughly average. It has a Conservative MP there, Caroline Spellman, who voted to remain but now accepts the need to leave. So again, that's fairly typical. It's just a, a kind of middling place. And so it like a good place to go and take the
0: temperature. So you went to kind of middle England in the middle of England and and asked people about Brexit. What what did they tell you?
3: By far the most common comment on both sides actually is that people are are sick of it, they want it over one way or another.
4: I can just say that I'm just fed up with a whole lot. uh, I don't understand it.
3: They're confused by the the the very very complex stuff that's going on to do with the you know the customs union the irish backstop the malt house compromise these are things that many mp's don't understand let alone ordinary members of the public and one thing that you notice on both sides is that both the leavers and the remainers have kind of hardened in their attitudes People who previously voted remain but accepted the need to leave are now thinking, actually, this is a farce, you know, let's let's roll the whole thing back. And meanwhile, people who voted leave and thought that we would be out by now are saying, let's just leave with no deal at all.
1: There's a lot of people, I believe, out there that maybe share my view that we need to get on with getting
3: out Maybe if there's not a deal, we've probably had plenty of time to make the preparations for that. So, appropriately enough, the very first person that I spoke to on Meriden Green in the middle of England was a completely middle-of-the-road voter who had previously voted Labour and uh, Tony Blair, then switched to the Tories, and then voted Leave, and he told me he was now backing the Brexit Party.
2: Only to underline my desire to just, you know, move this thing forward, because I think we need to get to the other stages. There's quite a bit...
3: I also spoke to a couple who had voted to remain and felt more strongly than ever that leaving was a mistake.
0: It is, it is cutting your own throat. And I've no qualms in arguing that the best solution to this is to put everything on hold, you know, to, to recognise that society is fragmented, but to give us a chance to address those issues without actually first crashing out of the uh, European Union. So it sounds as if, broadly, no one is happy with the way things have gone. Yeah, people are
3: sick of it. They thought that we were going to leave, many people thought we were going to leave the day after the vote. The new deadline is October the 31st. Some people think we won't even leave on that date. So everybody's just confused about why this is taking so long. And at the same time, people are annoyed about the way in which MPs have reacted to this.
2: I don't think that they thought it would go the way it has, and that's why
4: they haven't really properly prepared for it. This has just proved that there is very limited belief in our MPs anymore.
3: MPs have this difficult role where they feel a split loyalty. On the one hand, they feel that they ought to respect the overall result of the referendum. On the other hand, they feel that perhaps they should respect the the way that their own constituency voted. And on the other hand, they think that perhaps they ought to think for themselves and, and decide for themselves what they think is right. They're pulled in all different directions. I spoke to Meriden's MP Caroline Spellman at her local train station and
2: come the coffees and
1: it.
3: about the kind of pressures that she has come under since the referendum.
1: sort of veritable tsunami of emails from people describing you as a traitor, you deserve a bullet in the head, you should hang.
4: You know, it's not pleasant.
3: One of the first things that I noticed was that in her bag she had a panic alarm and she told me that this is something that she's had since January because... Although everybody feels frustrated, for some people that has boiled over into an extraordinary and in some cases violent sense of outrage which has been directed towards MPs.
1: And one of the difficulties with the death threats is it takes the police a few days to try and track the whereabouts of the person who's threatening to kill you. So there are kind of five or six rather anxious days where you don't know, you know, if it's the man next door or somebody living in Western Australia. Right, right
3: and she and her staff now carry these alarms which they can use to contact the authorities if they encounter danger
1: something very intemperate has been unleashed
0: i mean what's what's striking about caroline's story and this and the sort of broader story is uh, all, although the issue has raised some you know some real visceral reactions much of the debate over the past 3 years has been about really fine grained stuff really forgive me boring stuff. Um, And and it's very strange that this should, you know, get as far as things like things like death threats. Do you have a sense for for how we got from from there to here?
3: Well, you're right. Some of it's really boring. And believe me, no one knows that more than I do. It's um, it's very, very detailed stuff. And it's weird that everybody's got in such a flap about it because Europe was never actually something that British people really cared all that much about. You know, four out of 10 people only made up their mind about how to vote not that long before the referendum. It's not something that people have always felt incredibly passionately about. And I was trying to figure out what it was that had got people so unhappy about this. And uh, I was talking to a psychologist about it, actually, a psychotherapist uh, about Brexit. And he was telling me about how... It had been a problem for many of his clients, you know, couples in some cases breaking up over it, people having arguments with their parents-in-law, that kind of thing. And he said that he found that when people argue about Brexit, they're actually kind of arguing about something else. So somebody might be annoyed with their partner or their spouse or whoever about, you know, not doing the washing up, for example, and they snap at them. You know, why did you vote that way in the referendum? And it's not that they really care about, you know, the customs union or something like that. It's that there's a kind of bigger issue going on underneath. And it struck me that something like that really is what's going on in Britain. We're having this argument about aspects of our relationship with the EU. But really, we're arguing about something much bigger. There's a big cultural divide which has been growing in Britain now for decades, in fact. And the referendum really exposed it. It showed the way in which British society has split into these two new tribes. What what are these tribes? What is the real division here? Well, the old division uh, helps explain it. The old division was really a, a kind of economic one. So if you go back to elections in the 1970s, rich people were about three times likelier to vote Tory than Labour. Now, in, in the last election in 2017, rich people were about as likely to vote Labour as Tories. So the class divide in British politics has completely dissolved, really. And it's been replaced by new divides. Age is one of them. So in 2017, if you were 30 years old, you were about twice as likely to vote Labour as someone who's 70 years old. So that's a new one. There's also a widening divide between town and country. So people who live in big cities are increasingly Labour and increasingly Remain. Uh, people in the countryside are more Tory and and more Leave. And some of this is driven by a big divide between graduates and non-graduates. There's been a big increase in access to higher education and with that tends to come a kind of slightly more open attitude to the world. People who've been through university tend to be more pro-immigration more pro-globalisation in general. So these are the new divides and the Brexit referendum really showed them up in a way that the party system hadn't.
0: Tom, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. In Turkey, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has suffered a political blow. The candidate he was backing in Istanbul's mayoral election was defeated by a challenger from the opposition party. Last night, the winner, Ekrem Imamoglu, celebrated. He said people had protected the reputation of democracy in Turkey, with the whole world watching. The world was watching because this was a rerun of an election initially held in March. Back then, the president's preferred candidate from his Justice and Development, or AK party, also lost, but only narrowly. Election authorities overturned the result on a technicality, and both campaigns were vigorously refought ahead of this weekend's poll.
1: It was a hugely significant result because rather than being reversed, as Erdogan had hoped, uh, the man who won just by 14,000 votes in March, Imamoglu, he won by 800,000 votes he massively increased his share. So in a country where Erdogan rules uh, with a rod of iron, the voters had not only failed to do what he asked, they'd gone against him hugely. Edward Carr is the Economist's deputy editor. And the prize is Istanbul, which is economically, culturally, and politically, really, the heart of Turkey, even though the political capital's Ankara. The really important stuff happens In Istanbul, Erdogan's party, the AK party, has run Istanbul for the last twenty-five years, and it's been the, the absolute bedrock of his of his politics. Partly because it's where the party's been able to show what it can do, but also it's a very important source of money, contracts, foundations, government grants, patronage, and deprived of that, they're deprived of an important source of their power and of their money.
0: And so the, the man who most definitely will now be uh, mayor of Istanbul, uh, Mr. İmamoğlu, what, what do we know about him and, and his policies?
1: Well, he's come from almost nowhere. Um, he, he, his origins actually were in the same part of the country on the Black Sea where Edwin where originally came from, and then, then he moved to Istanbul. He joined the opposition CHP party and became mayor of this district. His main sort of campaigning style has been his optimism. He hasn't threatened and shaken his fist. He's made people feel cheerful. And his main policies are to divert money from big projects into social welfare because the one of the problems for Erdogan has been that the economy has suffered in the last few years.
0: That kind of sunny disposition is, is not what we've seen uh, coming out of, of Turkey over the past couple of years, not the way that Mr. Erdogan has, has ruled. How do you think he will react to having been, well, thumped this second time around?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. After the failed coup of 2016, the country's been really quite severe. I mean, something like a quarter of a million people have either been locked up or lost their jobs. And they've been professors, people in the army who are suspicious. All sorts of people have – teachers, all sorts of people have, lo- have lost their jobs. And Turkey's been really quite a dark place Well, Erdogan is not the sort of person to give up. (laughs) He has all sorts of mechanisms at his disposal. For instance, the city council is still in the hands of AK. They can frustrate and get in the way of Imamoglu. There may be changes to mean that mayors have fewer powers uh, because don't forget that as president of Turkey, whose powers are expanded massively in a referendum which which Erdogan won, he has powers to perhaps to rearrange the competences of mayors to mean that Imamoglu can't do very much.
0: So you might look at this outcome at this, this election and think, you know, this is a, a, a great sign for free and fair elections and perhaps even that, that Mr. Erdogan's power is slipping in some way if he should be beaten twice on, on such home turf. What you've just said seems to suggest not really.
1: I think it means that he has weapons, but there's one big thing now that counts against him that he had this invincibility. Erdogan wants elections because he wants the legitimacy that elections confer on him, but he doesn't like to lose them, and he hasn't lost them. Well, this time he lost, lost twice, and he's lost, therefore, that sense of invincibility. And I think there are people, even actually with Erdogan's old side, some of the people who helped found AK with him, particularly Abdullah Gül, who was um, a president of Turkey before Erdogan, are unhappy and known to be unhappy with the way he's governing. And to them and people like them, this will be an amazing encouragement. He is vulnerable. Uh, and I think that's the real significance of this result.
0: Edward, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. In many places, hailing emergency services is as simple as picking up the phone.
1: Nine one- What's
0: your emergency? But in some parts of the world, calling for help is not quite so simple. In Kenya's capital city, Nairobi, for example, there are around 50 different numbers for emergency services and no central dispatcher. An ambulance will take, on average, more than two hours to arrive. But a startup called Flare, dubbed an Uber for ambulances, is trying to change that. Caitlin Dolcart, one of the company's founders, spoke to our health policy editor Natasha Loader at a recent conference on building sustainable healthcare systems.
2: So we started Flare because at first we thought it was just a thing in Kenya that lacked nine one one. And the more that we dug into it, we realized that sixty percent of the world is without such a system that you all take for granted, and you don't actually understand the value of it until you're either need to use it or you're in a place that doesn't have it.
0: so, Natasha, when you spoke to Caitlin, what did she tell you about how exactly Flair works? Why is it called Uber for ambulances?
4: What Flare did was quite smart. Like Uber, it recruited all the private operators of ambulances that existed in Nairobi. And it's using location-based information in order to help the person who needs an ambulance, identify the closest one to them and actually dispatching them. So with this system, you call a number. It's not an app. You call a number and Flare knows where you are and it can calculate where the nearest ambulance is, not just based on location, but also on traffic and dispatch it.
0: And, and who pays for it?
4: Well, at the moment, it's a private effort, and so it's a subscription based system. And so you're seeing the big corporates are paying for it, schools are paying for it, and also individuals. But obviously, ultimately, you would want a system like this to cover all of the population. So that has to be a question for the government, really.
0: And so is it making a difference already? Is it it clear that it, it works?
4: Yeah, it's making an incredible difference. When I spoke to Caitlin, she told me that their figures showed that they had reduced the time it takes for an ambulance to arrive from 162 minutes to 15 minutes. So
2: my favorite stat on that is the fastest Kenyan marathon runner can complete a marathon and a half before you would be able to get an ambulance previously. And we've brought it down to 15 minutes on scene and
4: you're in a hospital bed with a physician in 69 minutes. And that huge drop is really down to the fact that they can just pick the nearest ambulance.
0: Well, what about other cities? What about cities, in fact, in the the developed world? Are there there lessons to be drawn here?
4: Well, I think Anywhere around the world where you have these fragmented emergency response systems should be looking at this case in Nairobi and thinking about whether it can be adopted. I mean, it's fantastically useful. Even countries with more centralized systems, I think what the FLARE system shows is the sort of benefits of using geolocation via mobile phones. One of the things Caitlin told me was that the NHS, National Health Service here, was built on a sort of landline system. NHS
2: needs to be able to identify where you're calling from. So all the systems were based on landline tech, meaning that your landline was registered to a specific address. So if you picked up a phone and called from an office building, they would say, I know that you're calling from you know, 11 Charles Street. Whereas once mobile phones were introduced, You could be roaming all around. You're not calling from a landline. You could be on a highway and you're disoriented, you're panicked, you have no idea, and you're just yelling out, I'm on the highway. And so the biggest thing is that these systems need to be cloud-based. They need to be integrated with today's technology. And location-based is like, I mean, that's the way of the future.
4: I think the sort of efficiency of being able to geolocate people by their mobile phone really can't be beaten and something that we should be thinking about doing here.
0: Thanks very much for coming in Natasha.
4: Thank you so much Jason, always a pleasure.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.